0: Robert J. Booker has been a civil rights leader, teacher, state legislator, historian, newspaper columnist, and Knoxville City Council member. In this program offered by the East Tennessee Historical Society, he speaks to a group of history teachers about his involvement in lunch counter sit-ins in Knoxville during the civil rights movement. First of all, I think most people, when they think about the civil rights movement, they think about the sit-ins in, at the movie theaters and lunch counters in the 1960s. But the Civil Rights Movement really started in the 1860s. Many people don't know that. But I think as you you know, slavery ended in 1865. And immediately thereafter, a group of black men began to meet in Nashville and uh, petition for certain rights, the right to vote, the right to sit on juries, the right to uh, ride train cars, the right to do all kinds of things that other people were doing. They didn't get much of a hearing in 1865, so they met again in 1866 and did some more of the same stuff. And during that time, a man by the name of Melvin Gentle from Knoxville was elected president of the organization. So they again were asking for those various rights and finally the federal government heard them in 1875 and it passed the first civil rights bill that year and that bill gave black people the right to go to any theater, to eat at any restaurant, to stay in any hotel, to ride on any train, to be allowed in any horse and buggy that was for hire or to ride on a ferry or whatever, anything that white people were supposed to do. So that was the federal civil rights bill of 1875. But Southern legislatures didn't care too much for that civil rights bill, so they decided they would do something to nullify it. So here in the state of Tennessee, the state legislature passed its own bill that said, well, the federal bill is not what we want. And they passed a unique kind of bill. In fact, I always wondered why the bill, the law of 1875, was not called part of the Jim Crow laws. The Jim Crow laws came later, and I couldn't figure out why this was a law that restricted the movement of black people, but was yet not called a Jim Crow law. Uh, There was always a question in my mind, and I'll get to the answer in a minute. Frederick Douglass came here to speak in 1881. He spoke at Knoxville's Opera House. And after he spoke, they gave him a room at Knoxville's Hattie House. That was the finest hotel in the city of Knoxville. And I said, how is it that Frederick Douglass, a black man, the abolitionist, could be put up at the Hattie House in Knoxville when the laws of 1875 said that black folks and white folks couldn't mix. But once I read that law of 1875, it became clear to me as to how Frederick Douglass was allowed to stay at the Hattie House. Problem was, the bill of 1875 never mentioned black people. What it did was to give proprietors the right to refuse service to anyone without having fear of being sued and taken to court. And you would think a bill written like that would mean, well, we don't want drunks in this establishment. We don't want people who won't pay in this establishment. We don't want people who are dirty in this establishment. And that's the way it reads but yet it was aimed at black people. So Frederick Douglass could perfectly stay at this hotel because the law didn't exclude him. It gave the property owner the right to exclude him if he or she chose to do so. But since he was Frederick Douglass, they let him come. So that was the first of those laws that, put blacks in segregation. We were in segregation in this state for 90 years. Well, almost 100 really from 1875 until 19, well, well 90 years, 1875 to 1965. But that was only the first one. And then so came the so-called Jim Crow laws that actually mentioned black people in what they were doing. And the first of those came in 1881, 1882 Black people had gotten into the habit of riding trains. They, after all, were free from slavery, or if they hadn't been in slavery, their travel was curtailed to a great extent. So now they could get on the train and travel wherever they wanted to go. But there were people who objected to riding in the same cars with black people. So the state legislature passed a law of 1881 and 1882 that put black people in separate train cars From White people. Then there was the law of 1901. Maryville College was a school that was founded in 1819. And it had always taught black people as well as white people. In fact, it was bold enough during slavery to buy a slave to teach him to be a missionary and sent him to Africa and gave him his freedom at least 10 men graduated from Maryville College before 1900. But before the turn of the century, there was a white man about to graduate from Maryville College and he chose not to graduate in a class with a black person. So he dropped out of Maryville College and waited for an all white class. After he finished the college, he eventually became a state legislator And it was he who authored the bill of 1901 that said black people and white people cannot go to school together anywhere in the state of Tennessee. Now prior to that time, we know that the public schools were segregated, that was a given. But private schools like Maryville College and Knoxville College always taught black and white students together. But after 1901, that was strictly against the state law. And, of course, that, that law stood until 1954 when the Supreme Court ruled that segregation in the schools was illegal. And I have another little tidbit here. You might want to look at it somewhere along the way. It's, it's the scrapbook of, that, that tells about the desegregation of the Knoxville City School system. Virtually all the newspaper clippings from 1954 when that started through 1972, because a battle went on that long to desegregate the Knoxville school system. And in there, you will see pictures of John Casper. I'm sure you heard that name, particularly in Clinton. He came to Knoxville and organized the White Citizens Council, and some of his vitriolic speeches are in the scrapbook, which are very interesting to me. So those were some of the first laws that were passed. And then there was another law passed in 1905. Uh, Black people pretty much rode the local streetcars as they wanted to. But in 1905, they decided to pass a state law that relegated black people to the back of the streetcar and to the back of the bus. There's an interesting story about how that came about. I don't know how true it is, but it's a very interesting story anyway. It seems as though down in West Tennessee, there were black people getting off from work who had worked in the factories or the fields, and they were on the sweaty side. You know, the right guard had gone. And they would get on the streetcar. and there were people who, you know, worked in offices who who didn't lose their right guard. And they objected to sitting by sweaty Negroes. So they petitioned the legislature to, uh, or or the bus companies, or the streetcar companies, to add an extra car for black people only. But the streetcar company only said, well, that's just too expensive to run two sets of streetcars. We just can't do that. So the question went to the state legislature. And the legislature, in all its wisdom, said, well, if we put... Those sweaty Negroes on the back of the bus, you're less likely to know they're there because the logic is that if the streetcar is moving forward and the wind is blowing this way, then you don't know whether a guy has right guard on or not. Now, that's the story I hear as to how that came about. I can't swear to it, but I can tell you this. Uh, when I worked for Stroll's Beer in Detroit, I would ride a little 10-seater plane from Detroit to Chicago or some other nearby city, and on occasion on that plane they would have illegal aliens, people who had crossed the border and they were shipping them back home. And sometimes the fellas they had on the plane really hadn't had a bath recently. So the pilot of the plane asked me to move up front and the guys that were being deported had to sit in the back and I guess it was less offensive for me to sit on the front of the plane so maybe there was some logic to all of that I don't know but at any rate these were the laws that kept blacks in segregation for about 90 years and it was not only with Hotels and restaurants and movie theaters that were separate. There were other things that were separate as well. I'm sure you've heard of separate water fountains. I remember growing up in Knoxville when I went downtown to a department store if I wanted a drink of water I had to drink out of the colored water fountain. One time I did sneak and drink some white water and it all tastes the same to me but uh, <laughs> I, I'm kind of a devil and I would do things like that. And there was a row of toilets, colored women, colored men, white women, white men. We all had separate toilets. And and one thing, uh, as a kid growing up, we had the city-owned Chilhowee Park. Well, if you've been to uh, the, your, your county fair, fair in your county, you know what they do there. They not only judge the cattle and the pigs and the sheep and whatever. But they have the Ferris wheels and the Dodgem cars and the Crazy House and the Love Tunnel and all that stuff. We had that here in Knoxville every summer. But black people could go to Chillawi Park only one day a year. And that was on the 8th of August. And why that date? Well, that was the date in Tennessee when Andrew Johnson, who was military governor of the state, freed his slaves on August 8th, 1863 or thereabouts. Now Mr. Abraham Lincoln had already signed the Emancipation Proclamation, saying that slavery would end January 1st, 1863. But that proclamation was aimed at Mr. Jefferson Davis and his states. And Mr. Lincoln couldn't tell Mr. Jefferson Davis what to do. So the Emancipation Proclamation is a beautiful document But it's really not worth the paper it was written on. And living in Tennessee, it excluded us altogether because Tennessee was not one of those states in rebellion with the Union. So Tennessee was X'd out of the Emancipation Proclamation, so it wouldn't have affected us anyway. But anyhow, that's what we had to put up with at our city-owned park. We could go only one day a year. And then in 1948-49... Some of the preachers in town led a protest saying this is a park that everybody pays taxes for, we all ought to have the opportunity to visit when we want to. So we had a liberal mayor at the time and he said, well, we'll just let the colored folks go on Thursday. So it's, we stopped going once a year but could go every Thursday and white people knew that, well, black folks are going to be there on Thursday. so. If we don't want to mix and mingle with them, we don't have to go. Of course, some did because they didn't care. But those were some of the laws that, that we had to put up with uh, in those days of segregation. It's interesting how I got involved in the sit movement. I was president of the student government at Knoxville College. And as you heard, helped to initiate that effort. I've lived in Knoxville all of my life and had experienced racial segregation. I'm not sure it damaged me any. I'm not sure that I really thought a lot about it because this is the way I grew up. This is the way we did things. and I wasn't one to rock the boat. Uh, When I became a student in high school, we, we moved from one house to another. And this second house was on the edge of a white neighborhood. So I began to play play with the white boys in the neighborhood. And uh, we did things that boys would do. We would go swim in the creek. We would hop the freight trains. And we built us a playhouse. Uh, there was an old four-cornered concrete wall that had been part of a basement, I guess. So we put a top on it and put a stove in there. And in wintertime, we could play all year long. And then along the way, somebody would say, let's go to a movie. And we'd say, yeah, let's do. We had a dime to go to the movie. So we would walk down Gay Street, right down through here, to the Bijou Theater. The white kids would go in the front door, and I would go around the side and go up the fire escape and sit in the second balcony. We saw the same movie at the same time, and when the movie was over, We met in front of the theater, walked back to our neighborhood, and continued to play. I don't think any of us thought about what we had just done, because that's the way things were. Now, when I went to the Army in 1954, I had lived with all of this all of my life, and perhaps really had never thought of it. But the Army had been desegregated since 1948 when President Harriet Truman issued that executive order saying we're not going to have this foolishness in the military. So when I got to the Army in Georgia and in France and in England, we all lived together. We all stayed in the same barracks. We all went to the same mess hall. And after duties were over, we went into town to movies, we ate at restaurants, we did whatever. Did that for three years. And I got used to it. It was interesting to be free. I didn't know I was chained until I got there. Then in the summer of 1957, I was discharged and came back to Knoxville. And lo and behold, I was back in that same rut all over again. But now I realized I was in a rut. Because if I wanted to go to a first-class restaurant and eat... I had to go out to the airport, the Sky Chef restaurant, which was on federal property or at least federally operated or some kind of federal concern that wouldn't allow them to segregate against me. So I had to eat at the airport if I didn't want a chicken dinner or a chitlin dinner or whatever the black restaurants were offering. And I said, gee whiz, this is awful that I have to drive these 20 miles when I want to go out for a decent dinner. And then as president of student government at Knoxville College, I noticed what was going on in Greensboro, North Carolina. The college students there had said, enough is enough and we're going to protest this kind of stuff. So we're going to start sitting in at the lunch counters in Greensboro. And that's what they did. And then they began stand-ins at the movie theaters to protest the fact that they couldn't buy a ticket at those theaters. So we took note of that and said, that's what perhaps we need to do here in Knoxville. So we started making some effort to do so. But the older folks in the city said, well, we're not sure that's the thing to do. You know, we have good race relations in this city. And what you're about to do will set us back a 100 years. And we don't want to get into all of that stuff that you are seeing somewhere else. Let us negotiate. Or we can talk to the downtown lunch counter people and others. And they will uh, desegregate on a volunteer basis without demonstrations. We said, okay. We didn't believe it. But we said, if they want to try that, we'll give them a chance. So they went at it. The negotiations allegedly went on and on and on, but we couldn't see any results. The mayor of Knoxville was tuned into that, and he went one step further. He took me and another student to New York to talk to the head of Cresses and McClellan's and all the five-and-dime stores that you've heard about in the past. When we got to New York, they said, we're sorry, but we can't talk to you because if we talk to your delegation, we're gonna have to talk to delegations from Atlanta and Oshkosh and Jackson, Mississippi and wherever, and we're just not gonna get into that. So they just refused to. We as students thought the merchants were stalling for time. They were waiting for the college year to be over, and then they wouldn't have to deal with it. So what we decided to do was just jump in a few cars and drive into downtown Knoxville to let them know we meant business. And I'll never forget that day, because as soon as we got back to campus, the president of the college called me into his office. And he said, Mr. Booker, Mayor Duncan is very upset with you that you knew they were negotiating and you would bring the students into downtown Knoxville and walk through these these places. He want, he's waiting for you. He's at his office right now. So I had a little 52 Ford. I jumped in my car and ran down to the mayor's office. Sure enough, he was waiting. He said, I don't know what you're trying to do up there, but you know we're trying to settle this peacefully. We don't want demonstrations. And I tell you, if you're going to do this, I'm going to put all of you in jail. I said, well, Mr. Mayor, if I think we have our rights to protest and it You won't let all the crooks and criminals out of your jail and fill it up with college students. That's up to you. You have your job to do, and I have mine to do, and I walked out of his office. Shortly after then, that's when the sit-ins began in earnest. And what I'd like to do now is show you some pictures of uh, what the situation was and kind of tell some stories as we go along because course, this is before we get to the sit-in movement. This is Carl Cowan. Carl led most. He was the attorney for most of the desegregation cases in the schools in East Tennessee. These Negroes refused entrance by UT. That was in 1939. And it took until 1952 when this man, Gene Mitchell Gray was eventually admitted to the graduate school at the University of Tennessee. He had graduated from Knoxville College a couple of years earlier. This is Theonis Robinson. He was one of the first black undergraduates to go to the University of Tennessee in 1961. So the University of Tennessee hasn't been desegregated that long if he was in that first class of 1961. Of course, he eventually became a city councilman, and interestingly enough, he is currently one of the vice presidents at the University of Tennessee. Now we get to those sit-ins that I was about to tell you about. Here's a young lady who's carrying a sign. We just can't shop on an empty stomach. And that has meaning because it was nothing for us to walk into one of those stores and buy a pair of shoes or a dress or a hat or some notebook paper. But we couldn't sit at the lunch counter and have a Coke or a hamburger. Here's another shot. The center, riches Likes Our Dollars Standing Up. Reference to Rich's Department Store, which was downtown, where again, one could walk in and buy whatever, but you couldn't sit at the main lunch counter and have a hamburger or a Coke. Anytime any of us walked in, the waitresses would back off and go to the back, and uh, just ignores. And the gentleman there in the middle with the light colored outfit on, I saw him just a few months ago when I was in Cincinnati because he is one of the directors of the National Underground Railroad Museum called Westmoreland. And this is a 1963 picture where students are being arrested. And here again is that old law that I mentioned a while ago. Uh, They were being arrested for disorderly conduct because the proprietors didn't want them coming to that theater. And since they were there, it was creating a disturbance, uh, perhaps prohibiting some people from going to see a movie. So they were arrested for disorderly conduct. And this young lady is being hauled off to the Hoos And I think her attitude is, uh, it's really a crying shame, but I'm going to put the best face possible on this. And she's clapping and singing as she's being hauled off to jail. And you notice that that's a black policeman who's carrying her away. Much of the time on Gay Street during these demonstrations, there were policemen who understood what the movement was about because Mayor John Duncan did not want any trouble. So he assigned police officers who could control themselves, both black and white, Uh, even though we were arrested sometimes and charged with disorderly conduct. The officers didn't get out of hand. They didn't club anybody. They didn't call out the police dogs. The fire hoses were never used on people and that kind of thing. Because we, I guess, had enlightened leadership in the city. Mayor John Duncan felt that way. Former Mayor George Dempster said, uh, look, I have a plant and blacks and whites eat together in my plant, so I don't know why they can't eat together at the lunch counter. And even Kaz Walker said, I don't know why you can't desegregate those places. So when you had the big three creating an atmosphere and creating an atmosphere, attitude we didn't have the problems that they had say in Birmingham and Selma and other places because the leadership wouldn't tolerate that and this is Father Matthew Jones who was a priest at St. Luke's Episcopal Church he was one of the fireballs in (laughs) in the demonstrations I I lived in public housing at the time I was president of student government And he would always come by my house and bang on my door and said, what are we going to do today? Let's get out of here and do something. The walls of Jericho came tumbling down so we can knock the walls of segregation down. That was his attitude. And his sign says, we're all brothers in Christ. Why can't we be brothers at a lunch counter? But not everybody agreed with us. Sometimes it was embarrassing that we had more white University of Tennessee students picketing than black students because sometimes if the Knoxville College students knew that there weren't going to be any cameras out, there wasn't going to be any coverage, or if they didn't think they were going to jail, they didn't want to participate. It was a badge of honor to go to jail and to have your name in the paper in protest. But these gentlemen uh, didn't agree with our movement And they had signs that said all kinds of things, send these Africans home, for example. Sorry, we are richest, first-class customers. You are rock bottom, and all that kind of stuff they had to say. And here's another group, sit-down demonstrations are un-American. And I'm always amused when I look at the license plate on that car, because at the time, the, the prefix number indicated what county the car was from. And Knoxville at the time had a three, Nashville had a two, Memphis had a one. But this is a 40, which meant that the car came from either Loudoun County, Madison County, or one of those. So they came to town to tell us how <clears throat> un-American our activities were. So it, it's interesting to watch those young men. Now this is the summer after Knoxville College had uh, let out for the year. And so the older people in the community understood what we were trying to do and they had been double-crossed in these so-called negotiations by the (coughs) lunch counter owners. So they decided to take up the, the movement themselves. And the gentleman there with the bow tie on was very active in the movement he was a member of the Unitarian Church. He was employed by TVA. I think his last name was Jones. Uh, his daughter is very active now in, in South Knoxville. But I think TVA eventually told him that he'd better chill out and stop doing all that. And there's a picture of me in jail. Yeah, I'm a jailbird and I'm proud of it. The gentleman on the outside is the Dean of Men who came down to get me out of jail. And I'll have to tell you the story about that. It's a hilarious one. I got tired of walking around in circles in front of the Tennessee Theater with my picket sign and decided to go up to the ticket window and ask for a ticket. Well, the lady wasn't about to sell me a ticket, so she stepped back out of the ticket booth and I just stood there waiting for my ticket. A policeman was watching all this, and he came up to me and said, Buddy, you're going to have to move on. I said, Well, when I get my ticket, I'm going to move on into the theater. He said, No, you have to move on. I said, Well, my ticket will move me on into the theater. He got tired of that. So he grabbed me in the back of the belt and said, Come and go with me. So he walked me down Gay Street, and he called the wagon. And I was arrested, was in the wagon, and on the way to jail, the wagon driver was giving me this great lecture. I don't know what's wrong with you colored people, he said. You've got the gym theater down there at the corner of Vine and Central. Why are you coming up here on Gay Street stirring up all this trouble? It's the communists doing it, that's what it is, and you're nothing but a communist dupe, he said. You know, anytime we did stuff like that, we were called crazy or communist. You know, you got to be out of your mind to challenge the system. So that's what, what it was. Anyway, going on to jail, he spots a drunk staggering across Gay Street. And he decides to kill two birds with one stone. So he opens the back of the wagon. I said, hey, hey you can't put that white man in here with me. He said, oh, we don't discriminate in here, buddy. And took us both on to jail. But you see, that's how silly it all was. And, and I'll give you a couple of other examples. One day went into Rich's department store to their main lunch counter. And there was, an <clears throat> there was an empty seat between two white fellas. So I sat down. Nobody paid me any mind. One guy had ordered a hamburger. And when the hamburger came, he said, excuse me, would you pass me the salt? I said, sure, pass the salt. He salted, and bit into his burger. And I said, excuse me, mister, but do you object to sitting beside Negroes? He said, I sure as hell do, and got up and moved. <laughs> he hadn't thought about it until I reminded him, you know, again, some silliness. I was sitting at a lunch counter one day with a young lady. We were the only ones sitting there. And an elderly white woman came in and she sat down and she looked at her watch and she said, where are they? And the young lady with me said, well, the lunch counter is closed. She said, closed. It's just now noon. Why are they closed? And the young lady said, because there are Negroes in here. And the white lady said, where? I don't see any. <laughs> so it, it's that kind of nonsense that, that really kept the lid on. It was serious business. You know, we could have been hurt. You know, a lot of things could have gone wrong. But, 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 but it was so funny in spots that, that, you know, you had to laugh about it and, and get the tension off. So that's what was happening. Are there any questions, any comments from you, anything you'd like to discuss that I missed? Yes. Uh, The famous documentary series,
1: Eyes on the Cause, looks at
0: Nashville and looks at the city movements there. And in that documentary they showed how some of these outside elements come into town and there's actually violence against some of the city members. Uh, was that also true here in Knoxville? Was there times when you were actually beaten or attacked by some of these outside? I, I don't know of anybody who was. There, there are people who say from time to time they were hit with a salt shaker or they had a coke thrown on them, but I, I really have no personal knowledge of that. We, we, our, our operation here was strictly a local operation. Uh, we didn't ask anybody from CORE or SNCC or any of the other organizations to to come and be involved. In fact, it's interesting to me when I I was a sophomore at Knoxville College, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King spoke for commencement and he said I have heard about your desegregation activities in Knoxville. That's all that was said. I have heard about it. But there, there may have been some people who came in on a bus and participated but uh, I'm not sure how many. As I said, there were a number of, of University of Tennessee white students who participated because they believed in our cause so they were involved, but, but outside stuff for the most part, no. I, I don't know too much. I, I, I don't know of any of that really. Somebody else had? Yes. Okay. The, the, the resistance that they- Churches were a common meeting place to plan protests. And as far as Knoxville is concerned, what areas were you able to to meet at? Well, it happened here in Knoxville. We called them mass meetings, and they were at different churches. Uh, We would meet at the church on an afternoon and make plans for the next day. And people were told, if you're... If you're not passive, don't go. We don't want anybody with hot tempers because you, if somebody were to hit you, you can't fight back, that kind of thing. In fact, two of the leading black ministers in town were chairpeople of what we call the Associated Council for Full Citizenship. They were the ones who did all the administrative stuff, uh, who, who wrote the ads that would go in newspapers and news releases and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, we, we met at different churches to, to make plans to do that. In fact, one, one of the pastors uh, was threatened. Uh, somebody told him they would blow his house up and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if they were serious or not. But this was one of the problems we had with the college administration. As you can understand, private Knoxville College, which has always had hard times, didn't have a lot of money depended on the public to make contributions to keep the doors open. And the president of the college felt that if we really got into the sit-in movement, some of the resources would dry up because people did call the campus and said, we don't want that stuff up there. So he tried to, on the front end, restrict us as much as he could, don't do it, listen to what the mayor is saying. And that went on and on until... We had a meeting with him and the dean, student leadership did, in the faculty building. And we said to them, if we are not allowed to participate in this movement, we will write letters to all the black media, the Chicago Defender, Pittsburgh Courier, Ebony Magazine, Jet Magazine, and let them know that you administrators at Knoxville College are not giving us the opportunity to demand, uh, oh, oh, we didn't mean that, they said. They backed off real quick. We just want you to know what you're doing. And that's the way it was. You know, we, 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 we issued that little threat that we weren't going to take it lying down. So they, they backed off. Yes? We've noticed that uh, quite often black police officers were used to arrest uh, black protesters. Have you ever had occasion to talk to any of those officers your feelings about that situation? No, I, I don't think they felt bad about it because they understood what they had to do. Uh, when you saw a lawbreaker, you had to arrest the person. In fact, I knew all of those guys personally that you saw on the screen. Uh, I, no, I didn't talk to them because I, I felt I knew uh, what, what they were feeling in regards to that. yeah. Uh, they, they were there to keep a lid on things, and when, when we broke the law, we had to be arrested and, and We understood that in fact, some of it, we purposely got arrested Phil you I was gonna add- If you've watched Big Orange Football with Phil Fulmer and before him Johnny Majors, always the black policeman who was behind one of those coaches was this fella. He worked as security at the University of Tennessee and he did a lot to help football players. He had uh, a fitness center, so many of the guys would come to his center for training and that kind of stuff. Somebody? I saw a hand. Yes. Urban renewal started in Knoxville in 1959, and it destroyed the black business community. Out of all the black businesses that were in Knoxville at the time, only two of those survive today because they were in a location where they had constant traffic, people coming and going all the time, and when they had to move to another area, they lost that clientele Hundreds of homes were destroyed by urban renewal. Fifteen black churches were destroyed by urban renewal, which were in that downtown area. So it put people in what I call a triple whammy. You had to rebuy your home. You had to reestablish your business. You had to rebuild your church. And you couldn't do all of that, especially when the urban renewal people gave you fair market value for your property. Fair market value might be that in the area you're currently located in, your property is worth $15,000. But if you move somewhere else, that same kind of property is going to cost you $25,000. So they didn't give you replacement value. They gave you fair market value. So you could not move under the and be under the same circumstances you were in originally. Now, urban renewal was very evil in that it just bulldozed those things. You, uh, that, there were some magnificent homes that were destroyed. In fact, I have a whole slide presentation on urban renewal that I do. And I showed the slum areas as to why it came about, the creek over flooding, the dilapidated buildings. Fine. They needed to go. But the mansions that were destroyed, the historic businesses that were destroyed, you know, that didn't have to be done. But they cleared out the whole area so that other people could get access to the land. And this is exactly what happened. Um, Can you let them know where some of the other materials, like what, are in your slide presentation, the images and that sort of thing? And then Steve said that you're working with the county. Yeah, uh, the call, in fact, that, that's part of that scrapbook you see in front of you. Uh, Carl Cowan, as I indicated, was the lawyer who filed all the lawsuits in East Tennessee to desegregate these schools. He saved every newspaper that had to do with that. So I've gone through all those papers. I have clipped them. I have photocopied them and put them in the scrapbook. Uh, they're the original copies of the speeches by John Casper and Asa Carter, and all the other citizens' council people. So, yeah, we have all of that, but all the legal papers are in the collection. Carl Cowan saved everything, so all of that stuff is available for anybody who's serious and really wants to get into it. Who should they contact? Who should they contact? Well, contact Steve, and, and he will, if I'm here, just let me know, or whoever's... Here, it's easily found. It's all been cataloged, so one can find it. What I've been doing since I've been here, I'm working on a series of papers. Uh, I discovered in looking at the encyclopedias here, there are no black people at all in any of the encyclopedias in this building. And that disturbed me because we've had some giants in history. So what I have been doing, looking at individuals and fleshing out their accomplishments, their character, writing papers on them. Uh, I've done a paper on slavery in Knoxville, how many slaves there were, what kind of work they did, what people charged for them when they sold them, the city ordinances that regulated slavery. I'm, in other words, I'm trying to find everything there is about the black experience in the city of Knoxville, and put it in a one paper or or another. Right now, I'm working on blacks in politics in Knoxville, from the time we first got the right to vote in 1867 and the right to sit on juries and the whole office in 1868 and the first two black people who were elected to city council in 1869 and a black doctor who ran for the state legislature in 1869. I'm documenting all those personalities, what the newspaper editorials said at that time about why blacks should not vote and all that kind of stuff. So all of that will be in papers. I don't know what kind of publication we'll eventually wind up with. But all of the information will be in papers that, that I'm currently working on. And I think it's important because it, right now it doesn't exist. If, if you ask somebody about a particular black person or a particular event, I mean, it's not existent except maybe a paragraph, maybe two paragraphs. So I'm trying to expand on all of that. That's the whole point. The, the book that I did in 94, 95... It has ten chapters, and uh, yeah, this one right here. And and all I could do was just really touch on all of those subjects. I touched on them, but now I'm expanding on everything that's in here and more, because these things need more than a paragraph or two. Yes. Sure. You saw what was going on in Birmingham and places. Did you ever? Were you ever scared for yourself? Your actions. Oh, my mother was terrified. But when you are 24, 25 years old, what are you afraid of? Afraid of? You're invincible, and that's what I was. Uh, I, I, they couldn't get me in any way. I didn't. They, they could kill me, but they couldn't eat me. You know. And and I guess the main thing is that I didn't have a job. I couldn't be fired because. I was going to school on the GI Bill. So Uncle Sam was sending me that $110 every month. And in the late 50s and early 60s, $110 a month was a lot of money. But I'll tell you how they did. Well, they thought they were going to get me. And this is amusing, too. After I was arrested, the picture you saw came out in the paper. My automobile insurance company called me. And said, you know, you've been arrested, so we have to go up on your liability insurance. I said, for what? Well, you've been arrested. I said, but I wasn't in my car. I wasn't speeding. I wasn't making any legal turns." Well, no, you were arrested, so we're going up on your premiums. I said, you are? You take that policy and shove it. Because I was 25 years old. I wasn't going to have a wreck. Nothing was going to happen to me. So I drove my car for two more years without insurance until I became a teacher in Chattanooga. Those That company wasn't going to get me. So that no, I wasn't afraid, and that was my attitude. I was careful, I hope, but my, my mother was, oh, she was mighty concerned. She didn't know what was going to happen to me. But uh, no, it didn't bother me. No. In fact, it was... It it was a badge of honor to be put in jail and have people say things to you when you know they were wrong. Walking down the street one day, and there was this Knoxville Journal photographer. I knew him, and I spoke to him, and he spoke to me. And as he passed me, he said, you old nigger, you. (laughs) I thought it was amusing myself (laughs) that, that he would say something like that. Any other? Yes, sure. What do you think the most important thing kids these days should know about <coughs> the civil rights movement? Well, I, I think they first have to understand that there were these laws that kept us in segregation. And uh, that they really didn't cripple us. You know, I think young, too many young people today use crutches uh, just to get by. Because there's still a lot of people who say, well, these... Black children really can't learn or they're slow learners or, or whatever. And some of them pick up on that and they say, well, the teacher doesn't expect me to do any better. So I'll just sit here in the back of the classroom and twiddle my thumbs. I'm not going to do anything because I don't have to. And I think they have to understand that those of us who came before them really had to pay a price to, to, so they could be where they are. Our teachers in school told us that if you're going to succeed, you have to be two times as good as the white boy or you're not going to make it. And I think for a lot of us, that sunk in. When I sometimes go to a high school and talk to kids in their classroom about this, and sometimes the response is, <clears throat> I wouldn't have put up with that. But that's, that's what young people know. I wouldn't have put up with that. They, they don't understand they had to put up with that, you know, uh, until there was a mechanism to make some changes, you know. Yes. Did you ever have occasion to meet Dr. King or the other prominent leaders at the time? It's interesting. I met Dr. King. Well, I saw him when he spoke for commencement at Knoxville College, but I didn't get close enough to shake his hand. But when I went to school to teach Chattanooga, it was kind of interesting had a dear friend who was in the music department at the school where I taught, Howard High School. And he said to me one day, he said, will not you go to Birmingham with me? I said, for what? He said, I've got to go see Martin. I said, Martin who? He said, Martin Luther King. I didn't know that this music teacher had been an accompanist for Coretta Scott King when she was on the concert stage. So he knew her very well and he knew Dr. King very well. I said, of course I wanna go to Birmingham. We drove to Birmingham, pulled up at this motel and uh, Dr. King came out. He said, Russell, how are you doing? And Russell introduced me to him. And uh, Russell said, "Uh, Dr. King, what can we do while we're down here? And King said, well, we have this boycott going on in downtown Birmingham and I'd like to know how well it's going. Can you fellas just go downtown and walk around and let me know? So we walked around into downtown Birmingham and reported back to Dr. King. And finally, I was able to say to some of these local people, yes, I work with Dr. King too. <laughs> so yes, that, that was my, the only time I met him. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Cynthia and I are very good friends, and we compare notes all the time. When, in fact, I have to phrase this in certain ways so people understand where I'm coming from. When we were in school, we had teachers who Taught us science who couldn't get a job at Westinghouse. They taught us English because they couldn't get a job writing for Time magazine. They taught us health because they couldn't be employed by the organizations that pay you big money. So they were stuck in the classroom teaching us. Consequently, we had some of the best minds money didn't buy teaching us in that classroom. And now I'm not sure we have that caliber of teacher that understands the subject matter and the black community. They had been people who taught your mother or your grandmother or your big sister or your big brother. They knew the family because people weren't busted here and yon. You stayed in the same neighborhood. So everybody knew everybody and that helped. At segregated Austin High School in 1952, the highest score ever made on a civil service exam in Knoxville was made by a graduate of Austin High School at segregated school when he went into the fire department. That year, they established the Black Fire Company in Knoxville. We'd had black firemen in the 1860s. But when the firemen put on uniforms, blacks were excluded. And we had a high black voter turnout in 1951. They voted for the right guy for mayor. So he said, I'm going to make a change with some of that. So he organized a black fire company, and this fella made the highest exam ever made on the local civil service test. Yeah, we, 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 as I said, we had teachers who said, boy, I don't care if you live in public housing or in a shack behind public housing. You're going to get my work because if your clothes may be ragged, but your brain is not. So we, there was no excuse. Now everybody has an excuse. Their tennis shoes are not as good as somebody else's. Or you are told that you come from a one parent home. You can't learn. Or you didn't have breakfast that morning, so your brain is not functioning properly. Or you live in this zip code. We didn't have any of that nonsense. I don't care how poor you were. I didn't have a dad either. But I didn't feel like I was neglected by anybody. I had a mother and a grandmother who took care of me. And certainly a teacher who backed them up and who encouraged the parents to make sure I did what was right. Yeah, yeah, Cynthia and I basically agree that we had more education going on then for some of the reasons I've just mentioned. Uh, I, I'm bothered today with, with firsthand experience. When I finished Knoxville College, I went to Chattanooga, and I taught high school French a couple of years. It was a pleasure to deal with those young people. One of my students became a pilot for American Airlines, you know, that kind of thing. Back in Knoxville, all during the 70s, I was a substitute teacher. I substituted in a number of schools around town. Two years ago, I said, I think I'll go out to Vine Middle School because I'd like to challenge the kids. I'd like to inspire the kids. I'd like to teach the kids. I couldn't get the first base. Vine Middle School was my worst nightmare. And I thought I was an experienced teacher. No way. That, that, from the days I was in school, it, it's totally different. as night and day. They can open a bottle of water or a Coke and drink right in the classroom. Open a bag of chips and munch on chips. I think that's supposed to pacify them. But while they're being pacified, they don't learn anything. And on top of that, when you have a youngster in the classroom who wants to read, the dummies say, we don't want to hear him, and attempt to shut the kid down who really wants to do something in the classroom. For me, that was a nightmare. And I have tried to suggest in speeches all over the place that sometimes parents are just out of it, so you can't rely on parents to do anything for the kids. Where's granny? Where is Uncle Joe? Where is Aunt Sue? Go to a classroom and sit the whole day long and see what children are doing in the classroom. You can't go to PTA and know what your child is doing. You can't go to a basketball game or whatever. But this is, is what it takes from what I have seen. That's been my experience uh, in, in teaching in a school not too far from here. But we, we have real problems, and I think they're going to get worse before they get any better. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Robert J. Booker, brought to you by the East Tennessee Historical Society and Knox County Public Library Podcasts. More podcasts are available at knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G. This work is published under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License Copyright 2009 by Knox County Public Library.